Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 177. Today's show is an absolute shipwreck. Let's dig a little deeper and deeper and deeper (laughs) under the sea where all the shipwrecks are there for me. All right, welcome to the show. How's it going? Pretty good. We are in, we've moved again. New new place. We're in <laughs> Long Beach, Washington this time. World's longest beach, although... So they say. Yeah. But that's quite a claim, and we have not vetted it at all. And like, what does it actually mean? Because Long Beach is a town. Uh-huh. So is it the longest beach within a town's limits, or... Oh, I'm sure there's some kind of qualification on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Because I was just surfing around on Apple Maps on my iPad while watching TV one night in Kamchatka. As you do. Yeah. (laughs) I was in Kamchatka this time. Yeah. There are some long beaches. Uh Uh-huh. Right? It just goes for miles. Yeah. So what counts as the world's longest beach? I don't know. What are the criteria? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Well, Long Beach is home to the International Kite Festival, which is in August, and I... Mm -hmm was just looking at the dates for that and i think we might be able to make that work oh really possibly yeah so we'll have to see but anyway i love flying kites and it's not just like your normal you know pyramid like uh, like a kid diamond shaped yeah yeah yeah. i have i have a a rigid delta wing stunt kite that i bought Mm -hmm. uh, well actually it was given to me for it was given to me on my 18th birthday i think by my dad we both fly kites i still have that one it's really old I don't fly it as often, though, because, you know, when you crash it, you like break a spar and it's annoying <laughs> and you feel get a new one. Yeah. But uh, I have another one that's a three and a half meter wide, just about 10 feet, a little more than 10 feet, parafoil style. Yeah. Yeah. And that one's really good. And you've got a smaller parafoil one. Yes, I have a little one. And the smaller doesn't mean it's easier to fly. That thing's like a hummingbird. It it's is. It's super fast. But it's not as hard from a uh, it pulling pull on you your body. Yeah. yeah. Yours, I've tried to fly yours a couple times and it literally drags me around the beach. And it, Me too. I'm big. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a hard one to fly, but my yeah. little one is fun because you can control it better. Right. Anyway, we digress. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm just saying all that because there's a lot of beach here and we are just north of the Columbia River. Yes. In fact, if you kind of just like head out a little ways you can kind of see Oregon uh-huh. I think Astoria is like a 20 minute drive yeah we could easily go yeah. into Astoria so another thing that easily went into Astoria and probably <laughs> onto this beach was pieces of ship and beeswax <laughs> yeah. for the last few hundred years and why is that yeah so this is a bit of a themed week we've got going on here it's new stories like we like to do but for some reason there are just a ton of stories about various different shipwrecks in the news so this one is what kind of kicked it off for us. And this shipwreck is so cool. 
And then yep. we've got two more stories coming after that. All shipwrecks. All this, whole, shipwrecks. this entire ep- episode is like a shipwreck. Oh, it could be. Yes, this we'll whole, see. <laughs> just as an aside, when I was in the Navy, shipmate is what you call people. But of course, the slang term for people just to messy. piss them off was like shipwreck. shipwreck. Like, listen, shipwreck. Oh my God, that's my new name for you, shipwreck. <laughs> Actually, I think you've called me that before. I and I didn't even before. realize like no. what you were doing. <laughs> no, you, listen, shipwreck. Oh my God, I yeah. hate you more than I hated you before. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, right. okay. So let's talk about this shipwreck that was discovered here on the, it's on the Oregon coast technically, but actually very close to where we are physically because we're yeah. right on the edge of Washington here. So in 1693, there was a ship carrying silk and beeswax from the Philippines to Mexico. And like sometimes happens in the treacherous world of shipping in the 1600s, mm-hmm. it disappeared. Now, there are timbers that have been recovered off the coast of Oregon near Manzanita, and it has been confirmed that those timbers are part of the ship. Now, I was my first thought was like, off the coast of Oregon? This ship was going from the Philippines to Mexico and it ended up way up in Oregon. Like that had yeah. to be a, quite a storm to blow it off course that much. That's or, crazy. I mean, the, um, you know, the Philippines is in the Pacific, of course. Mm-hmm. And when you've got a ship that is subject to winds and tides, you know, they Maybe didn't have a motor. Maybe it kind of has a, a squirrely course to get there. Well, I'm, I'm willing to bet they just followed the circular tidal system oh, that is in yeah. the winds as well. They go clockwise in the Pacific and I, I believe they go clockwise in the Atlantic as well, which mm. is what brings warm air up through the Gulf and the East Coast and what brings cold air down from Alaska and which is why the mm-hmm. water and the air temperature is relatively cool here, cool here. Yeah. on the coast versus mm-hmm. warm. So ships would have, you know, just to be able to sail and not get stuck in the middle where there's, you know, little wind. They're taking like an arced route, basically. Yeah, they're okay. taking a longer route. Plus yeah. there's, um, there's a concept in... You learn in aviation called the Great Circle Route, which is you don't just go from point to point on a map when you're going these long distances. Mm-hmm. You actually put a put a big circle around the globe, and that point to point is actually the most efficient way. And oh, sometimes that means yeah. you're going over the pole in yeah. a plane. Yeah, that's you know? yeah, that's why on airplanes you see yeah. you actually are way further north when you're on an airplane on a long flight than you think. Yeah, if you're going like New York to London, you don't fly New York to London across the Atlantic. You yeah. fly, uh, you fly more over like Greenland yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, and then totally. come down because it's actually shorter to do that. So, all right. I guess it makes sense that maybe it was close <laughs> to Oregon when it, <laughs> when it wrecked. So these timbers that they found, there were about a dozen of them and they were recovered from some sea caves off the Oregon coast near Manzanita, like I said, and they are believed to be from the Santa Cristi de Burgos, which is a Spanish galleon. And this, just a little bit of information on what a Spanish galleon is, this particular one is a Manila galleon. And these are huge boats. They're 150 feet long. They're super sturdy, and they hardly ever wreck. They don't really find wrecks of these ships very often. And it's a European ship style, I guess you could say. And, of course, it was designed and built in Asia, so things haven't changed much in the last 400 years. That's still happening. So, yeah. Did you see why it's called a Manila galleon? Is that be- galleon? Is that because it's like... Light tan in color, or it didn't like like an envelope. <laughs> You're such a dork. You know, I'm just I'm just people, wondering. You and your dad jokes. They, they just are life. Did they have like I don't know? Other, oh my god! Welcome yeah. to my life, people. Okay, so the cargo included costly Chinese silk, porcelain, and blocks of this beeswax, which That's is why cool. it's called the beeswax wreck. And. They thought that the wreck had happened somewhere in this area because 
these chunks of beeswax that have the Spanish markings on them. So they know that the beeswax was something to do with Spain and probably going to Mexico or whatever. So they, and these blocks of it have been washing up on shore here in Oregon and probably most of the Oregon coast basically. Mm -hmm. And they've been washing up up there for centuries. Yeah, probably up here too. They've been washing up for centuries. So they knew it was around here somewhere and it actually got the name of the beeswax wreck because of that reason, which I love that. Yeah. And if you're wondering why the hell are they shipping beeswax? Yeah. Uh, bees are actually not native to the Americas. I know. I had no idea. Crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, at least the bees for this kind of beeswax, there must have been. I actually do want, want to do a little more research on this. There must be some kind of bee over here. Something's pollinating plants. Maybe wasps or stuff like that yeah. are, are native yeah. well, here. Well, there's lots but, of bee species. Yeah. But not all of them produce like the beeswax and the honey that, the bee, that yes. we need. And, and the reason they needed the wax is because this is a Catholic country. Mexico at the time, of course, was very Catholic. And they <laughs> needed the beeswax to make the candles for the Catholic ceremonies. I love that. Like, that's why they needed the beeswax, (laughs) not for the many other reasons that, you know, beeswax is good for. Well, I mean, candles in general, obviously, were very necessary at that time period, not having power, obviously. So, yeah. But the Catholics, they went through a lot of candles. A lot of candles. And so these chunks of beeswax that were washing up on shore, the natives sort of picked up on the fact that they were... Useful? Useful, yeah. And that they were good for trading. Valuable, yeah. Yeah. And so they would use them for trading. So there's also like these oral histories of natives of the area Mm -hmm. that that found this stuff and they were able to use it for trading. So finding this wreck actually kind of validates some of the oral stories and the oral histories of the Native Americans of the areas, which I think they actually really liked knowing that when they say that they used to trade beeswax in their stories, that that was like an actual thing that they did Mm. do. (laughs) One thing that I thought was cool, too, is, you know, while this isn't necessarily a Chinese ship, I mean, it was, you know, Chinese made Mm -hmm. and and they were coming from that area. Yeah. It's really cool thinking about traveling back in that time, because unlike now where we just go pick up souvenirs and crap that we don't really need, Mm -hmm. people really had just like an eclectic assemblage of things if they were world travelers like Mm -hmm. this And, and even sailors on ships like this, because other things that were that were washing up onto shore were fragments of the the typical blue and white Chinese porcelain mm-hmm. that that a lot of us have seen, especially archaeologists, and and then other you know other artifacts from different areas. Which you really have to understand stuff about international trade and travel because if you're just finding this stuff washing up on shore, you're like, where in the actual hell did this come from? Mm-hmm. But then you realize, oh well, there was a ship. It came from here. Yeah. You know, all these people. They they. You know, the ship probably, you know, has has had a long history mm-hmm. and they probably have lots of different things on board that have come from around the world. Yeah. And that's just the way life is on there. But when you get a wreck like that as an archaeologist, you're like, what is this crazy jumbled up assemblage of stuff from right. around the world <laughs> and probably from, you know, vastly different time periods? This wreck is super interesting because this was a ship that was bringing goods for trading. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a passenger ship. It 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 was it was a pile of the same thing basically <laughs> you know like piles and piles of the same thing yeah in the ship for trading and for selling and what they did to kind of figure out what this wreck was what what time period it related to was they studied the thousands of fragments of pottery that had washed up on shore over mm. the years those blue and white pieces of chinese ceramic and they actually dated them to the kangzi period of china from and that is a very short time period really from 1661 to 1722. Yeah, and that's K A N G X I. Yeah. Probably like Kang Kangxi, I don't Kang-Xi know. Kangxi or Kangxi. I know that yeah. X I is like she sometimes. Oh, okay, sure. But I don't yeah. know if there's when there's a G in front of it. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if that changes. But if you want to look it up, K A N G X I. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so why did they go hunting for this ship now? Well, obviously, we've had all these pieces washing up on shore over the years, so they knew there was something there. There's a local guy who was like, hey, there's some, you know, timbers in this cave, and I know they're there, and I can show you where they are. So that happened. And then they also have reports of an upper, a section of upper deck of a ship Mm. that was visible in the mouth of a nearby river until the 1920s. And -hmm. then it sort of broke up and washed away. So while that is gone, it's still more evidence that there was a large ship that had wrecked in this area. And another interesting thing about the Oregon coast, just in general, like they, they knew there were wrecks here because this is the rocky Oregon coast. And there's tons of stories about shipwrecks all up and down the coast. It's, Something that's attracted treasure hunters for years. The, there's always stories about them being full of riches and everything. So they're kind of weeding through a lot of stories about wrecks and treasure hunting and blah, blah, blah. Because there's the real stuff and then there's the lore and the stories too. And this is why there's lighthouses up and down the Oregon coast now yes. too. <laughs> well, yeah, there had to be because yeah. you can't see anything in the dark. And no. when you're sailing, sometimes you have to be moving in the dark. It just is what it is. So, yeah. yeah. Alerting people to to bad areas and, and just letting you traverse basically. Mm-hmm. So I never did figure out like how you're supposed... I mean, lighthouses help you navigate obviously and stay on course. And, and if they're set up correctly, you should be able to... As you're losing sight of one, pick up the next one. That's mm-hmm. kind of the whole point. Mm-hmm. And 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 know where you're at. But I don't know how you judge like distance between the lighthouses. If you can somehow triangulate that from the coast, if you know how far off the the, the shoreline mm-hmm. they are, you're like, well, I can see these two at this angle. Therefore, I must be this far out. You know, if they knew that kind of math back then. I knew they were doing pretty complicated navigational math. The, the real yeah. navigators on these ships were. But I'm just not sure what they were doing with that. So, Well, I think they knew how far out you could see the light, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they must have been able to do some triangulation type well, of stuff to help yeah. them figure out where they are based on which lights they can see, probably. If they had data on the elevation of the lighthouse and, you know, yeah. if they weren't the flat earthers, <laughs> they wouldn't know the curvature of the earth and yeah. how far out you could possibly see it. So, But yeah. I don't know. But once you can see it... You really don't know how far away you are, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah, but I think I've heard this story before. Actually, <laughs> oh, when I was, oh, do you uh, think so? When yeah, tell me. I think I was twelve. Uh huh. And there was treasure for sure. Uh huh. And uh, was there a monster? Maybe he wasn't a monster. Oh, he was sorry. just misunderstood oh. man. So <laughs> what are we talking about? We're talking about the Goonies. <laughs> the Goonies. So there's yes. your pop culture reference for the day. <laughs> Although, as per us, as per usual, it is a reference from the 80s because that's who we are. <laughs> so interestingly, Steven Spielberg may may have been inspired by these stories of all these shipwrecks and the treasure hunting on the Oregon coast and made the Goonies because of inspiration from those stories. <laughs> yeah. Of course, he's more from. I mean, he's he's done a lot. Well, I'm thinking of Stephen King up in Maine, but uh, yeah, you are because there's a lot of shipwrecks up there as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but not Stephen King. Stephen Spielberg. Stephen Spielberg. One of the Stevens. D- different Stephen. Different Stephen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's really cool. And this group of researchers that has been out there, they have been looking for this. I think I read in the article originally like 12 years or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, They've a been long looking time. For this. Yeah. Yeah, they're the ones who did the analysis on the pottery that we were talking about. They just collected what they could find from over the mm-hmm. years and were able to date them to that time period. This is the Marine Archaeology Society, MAS. Mm-hmm. They saw the Spanish markings on the beeswax and so they determined it was obviously a Spanish galleon. Like why else would there be Spanish markings on those those chunks of beeswax? Right. And they were able to narrow it down to only two possible ships that went missing during this period. That would be the Santo Cristo de Burgos, which was lost in 1693, 
or the San Francisco Xavier, which disappeared in 1705. Mm. And they were a little bit more inclined to say it was a Xavier at first because there was a huge earthquake and tsunami in 1700. And they figured that would have destroyed any previous shipwrecks from previous to that time. So yeah. the Burgos was from before that. So they were like, well, it must have been the Xavier then. Mm-hmm. However, interestingly, they did a geological study and it showed that the artifacts that, that they're finding in C2, the ones that are still in place, were actually under and within the sediment layer left by the tsunami. Yeah. So because of that, the shipwreck must predate it. Right. And because of that, <laughs> it must be the Santo Cristo. And once again, we find out that archaeology is not just a singular study of something. Mm-hmm. You need to use other, I guess, other sciences, other yeah. industries, yep. other other disciplines in order to really understand the full story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what they're saying here is they, they're calling this shipwreck the Santo Cristo, but it's like... It's not a smoking gun, right? Mm-hmm. Like they don't have a piece from the actual ship. Yeah. They don't have anything that says that this is definitely the ship. They're just assuming based on all these other sort of circumstantial factors and evidence that they right. have. Right. So, but I think it's really cool and it's definitely using science and archaeology to make that determination. So I buy nice. it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. The tide swings out here are pretty big too. And when they were actually finding this stuff, they brought in a bunch of people yeah. And including Oregon Parks and Recreation, local sheriff's department search and rescue, because mm-hmm. they have all these water rescue training. Yeah. You know, so they could go in there and do that. And one of the pictures in the article shows them like hauling one of these timbers out with like life jackets around yeah. it, you know, just kind of <laughs> float it out. Yeah, totally. That was really cool. It's like, it was like they're rescuing pieces of yeah. wood, pieces yeah. of really old wood. <laughs> it's kind of cool. I know. And the company that coordinated all this is actually a CRM firm called Search, and that's yeah. an acronym that I cannot remember the name for. I don't remember either. They were originally based out of Florida, I want to say, but they do work nationwide and they do underwater archaeology yeah. all over the place. Yeah, they really yeah. specialize in like maritime archaeology for sure. Yeah. So they they basically coordinated all this because it was a lot to get all of these people together mm-hmm. and the people that aren't archaeologists and scientists to work with the ones that are so that they know what they're doing and what they're picking up. And right. they only had 90 minutes because of these crazy tide swings mm-hmm. to safely get in and out and get the, the wood yeah. pieces that they were trying to, to uncover. So really well, that's probably. That's probably 90 minutes every like 12 hours too. Well, not even because they had to wait for a super low tide because not Uh, every tide is created equal. They were waiting for the lowest tide possible. And maybe they had a couple days of that because it's mm -hmm. sort of cyclical, you know, but they had to really schedule this and coordinate it. Right. It was a very well-coordinated maneuver for sure. Right. All right. Well, they're going to keep looking for the rest of the ship. Yep. Because they obviously haven't found all of it. Yeah, they want that smoking gun to know for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they need something probably that, you know, there's always often like a ship's bell or something like that that's labeled mm-hmm. with the name of the ship. They said even coins. Yeah. Like yeah. coins can be really indicative yeah. of where it came from and what ship it is. So, yeah, anything like that would be amazing. They think that there could be a coin in somebody's like personal collection that they found on the beach yeah. somewhere. They just need to turn it in but who wants to turn in a coin they found on the beach you know (laughs) yeah so it's really hard to find a ship that has crashed off the shore it's much easier to find a ship that's actually just like in a shipyard so (laughs) you don't say (laughs) yeah let's go off to the easy one Uh uh-huh over in 
Sweden. Uh-huh. And we'll talk about that on the other side. Back in a minute. Hey, everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to episode 177 of the Archaeology Shipwreck. I mean, sorry, the Archaeology <laughs> Show. So yes, this is a whole ship shipwreck theme. Yeah. This next one's not like a shipwreck. Right. But there are some ships wrecked in it. Yes. It's yes. a shipyard, an ancient shipyard. So right. that, that basically counts. There were ships there at one point. Yeah. So yeah. the article is called uh, First of Its Kind Viking Age Shipyard Discovered in Burka, a Swedish World Heritage Site. So mm-hmm. first of its kind in this area. Right. Obviously, shipyard and stuff like that have probably been found before in other places. but Though it, not necessarily Viking era. Cause, well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Viking era shipyard. That might be a new thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Burka is known as Sweden's first town, oh. which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Like their first real, I guess, real city-like thing. They're, they called it a city a couple times within this mm-hmm. uh, uh, within this article. It was established in the mid-8th century, which was a really long time ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was originally set up as a trading post for Vikings, basically, because they were traveling all over the place, mm-hmm. you know, picking different things up. I say that as though they were just out there touring around, but, you know... We all know they were raping and pillaging if you've ever seen the Vikings show. No. So the reality is they weren't always doing that. No. But I'm no. sure that did happen. I mean, they were Probably. they were actually pretty forceful about what they did, but mm-hmm. there was a lot of trade and, and other things going on as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Vikings are just, you know, horn wearing, you know, crazy people. Yeah. In fact, most of that is is myth. Right. But I think we did a Viking episode a while back. Yeah. We should probably put that in our notes and link to it. Yeah, we can do that. Anyway, the... Um, Trading post was set up by Vikings for long distance maritime trade, as I mentioned, because they had to be bring their stuff back and be able to like, you know, put it somewhere and, and do stuff with it. Right. Yeah. The city is currently on an island called Bjorko, B-J-O-R-K-O, because Sweden, you know, the, the tip of Sweden there is all just like it's all crazy island. islands and stuff because oh, okay. it's been ripped apart from the mainland. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So it was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1993. Mm hmm. Now, the city, Burka itself, 
it has a massive rampart surrounding it. And I, I'm actually not sure if that rampart is still there. I think it's more of a historical, you know, it was there like this huge, just basically wall. Uh, it's you like know. part of the World Heritage Site, I would yeah, guess, yeah, right? Like it's yeah. from one of the past incarnations of the city. Right. And that served as a, obviously, a, a defense mechanism, mm-hmm. as a, a legal boundary in some cases, as a social boundary in some cases, and, you know, other boundaries, you know, mm-hmm. it was just like, hey, stuff happens inside. What happens inside the wall stays inside the wall, basically. <laughs> so yeah. up until re- relatively recently, excavation efforts were focused, <laughs> were focused inside the rampart. Mm-hmm. However, they decided to, you know, take a, a closer look outside, obviously, they had done some work. They had done mm-hmm. some mapping and drone work um, in order to survey the area, which they kind of suspected was a shipyard, oh, but okay. hadn't really done any excavation on. Yeah. And they ended up finding a number of things. Some of the notable discoveries were a stone-lined depression with a wooden, uh, they said a wooden boat slop at the bottom. And I don't know what a slop is. S-L-O-P. And that could have been a typo in the article. I'm not really sure. But it said a wooden boat slop at the bottom. It said this is where boats would have been serviced. So I don't know if it was like the remains of a boat that was being serviced and just like abandoned. Or if it's some thing that you use to maybe hold a boat in place, perhaps, or something like that while the boat is being serviced. I'm actually not totally sure. Yeah, I'm guessing it's the second one because as we've seen in real life, you know, you have to have the boat standing up. You can't let it just tip over. It's bad for the boat. And also you need it to be upright in order to work on it properly. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing it's some way that they would hold it up in order to work on it. Yeah. You know, the, the real smoking gun that they found here too, which you would expect to find at a shipyard, mm-hmm. were massive quantities of used and unused boat rivets. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So yeah. And I'd like to know what a boat rivet looked like back in <laughs> you know the 8th and 9th centuries. I'm willing to bet they were just pieces of wood. Uh-huh. From what I understand... Oh, they're think, wood, not metal? I was well, thinking they would be metal. They don't have to be metal, okay. right? And they likely weren't metal early on, uh-huh. you know? Because uh, metal, and especially iron, you know, would, would be, sure, great and strong, but it would rust like crazy in salt water. Mm, that's true. You know, so yeah. you'd have to replace these things relatively frequently. Uh, it would yeah. have to be an alloy of some sort that was a little more resistant to rust. Yeah, like iron would be pretty good, right? Well, like I said, iron rusts. Y- yeah. But it have to be an alloy of something that doesn't have a lot of our mm. iron in it, right? So it just... still has that strength, but more rust. Yeah. I, I just am wondering because if there would, you would think they would have decomposed away. Well, all a rivet does is hold two things together. Mm-hmm. Right? If you take a, a piece of wood that is that it has been maybe softened mm-hmm. by water. Mm-hmm. Like if you soak it or something like that, and but you don't soak it to the point where it's just going to fall apart. This is really hard wood. Mm-hmm. And you can pound this in between two planks. And then once it like dries- Like Ikea furniture? Like Ikea furniture. <laughs> a, much like a dowel, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Except a dowel's not really a rivet. Yeah, um, yeah. Because a rivet's going to be more permanent. But, right. And then if you pound the ends to where they're, they're kind of flat, so you kind of squish them out, and then let that whole thing dry, and then probably- I think they used to put some kind of tar or pitch on it or something like that mm. that would help seal it up. Mm-hmm. Then that becomes the the holding portion that becomes the rivet that right. you know holds this whole thing together. So again, they didn't really elaborate on what the rivets looked like, but my guess is there were probably some wooden rivets because they they could have lasted in that environment depending on what they were digging in. Mm-hmm. Um, they did find other wooden fragments and things. Mm-hmm. They found whetstones made from slate, which of course are used for sharpening metal tools. Right. And also woodworking tools, which mm-hmm. again, you would expect all of this. Yep. So they did have metal and it's entirely possible that 
these were metal rivets, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, obviously they had metal in the eighth century. I, I just wasn't sure about in Sweden, like what their what their technological advancements were. Yeah, so. yeah. I guess I just don't know enough about how they built ships yeah. or how those people built their ships because it would be surprising if it wasn't metal. Mm-hmm. But I guess it could be either one. So sure, we sure. Just need more information. Yeah, a site like this has never been found in this area, so they're pretty excited about it. And the cool thing is, a lot of times when we find archaeology sites, we're like, I mean, it could be this, it could be that, especially when we're mm-hmm. working in, you know, like Nevada and California. We're oh, like, yeah. Oh, look at this. It could be, we, we always just like, it's a hunting camp because yeah. we found a projectile point. Right. <laughs> but it could just, could have been just like a daycare where you're having kids, you know, yeah. play with, play with tools. But anyway they clearly know this is a shipyard. Like mm-hmm. there's not really much else that it could be, which is really sweet. Overall, they found other things, including the remains of jetties and, and jetties for you non maritime folks are essentially usually rock, but could be other debris, but mm-hmm. it's, it's something that helps surround a Harbor or at least block the prevailing direction winds. of the, not necessarily winds, but the waves, yeah. which essentially are created by uh, largely winds. by the winds and yeah. the tides. So if you block those with a jetty, you end up with a calmer area inside mm-hmm. where you can work. And that's that's how harbors are created, yeah. or at least unnatural harbors. Natural harbors already have this kind of arc of land on either side with an entrance, mm-hmm. right? Usually that's created by, you know, some, some prominent river that comes in there. Over tens of thousands of years, it created this natural harbor. Yeah. They found boat launches and then, of course, other shipyard items, but mm-hmm. pretty neat. Yeah, that's really cool. So then my question is, and I'm sure this is the question of... The archaeologists and the people working on the site is who used this shipyard? Yeah. Could anybody use it? Right. What, why was it outside the town rampart? Or was it outside because it's a shipyard it and included? it's huge? Yeah. So it just had to be. The there seems like there's a lot more work that needs to go on into answering these kind of questions. Yeah, there certainly is. Because, you know, with this being a, a large port, I'm sure other explorers would have come by and said oh can i dock here and were they immediately assaulted and fire arrows shot at their ship or were they allowed to land and trade Mm -hmm. you know so and get their ship work done yeah totally well i mean it is a business right like shipyards are still businesses so i'm sure they anybody with money could get their ship work done right back then i wonder if it was a business it could have been state run Mm, it could have been you know owned by the city by the rulers yeah whoever's running the area yeah totally yeah so and and charging a tax to to get stuff worked on Mm -hmm. yeah i could totally see that so well somebody that could have used a shipyard (laughs) is a 1300 year old ship which puts it I mean, back right before when this city right was around, made. Yeah. So they were just too early <laughs> yeah. to get their boat worked on. But they were in southern France and wrecked their boat. And uh-huh. we're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Welcome back to the third and final shipwreck segment of episode <laughs> 177. And this one is actually a shipwreck. This one is. Yeah. So the article is called Archaeologists Race Against Time to Study Crumbling 1300-Year-Old Shipwreck. And it is a 40-foot longboat, and it radiocarbon dates to 680 to 720 CE. It is located in a silty stream bed, and it's preserved it really well. Silt and that, like, wet silt is a really, really great preserver. Yeah. So that's nice. However, (laughs) (laughs) it is extremely fragile, and even just a little exposure to air starts breaking down the wood. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it's really cool. The first picture you see if you click on the, the link in the article is basically the remains of the boat. And yeah. it looks like they've put down 
the uh like like metal i I would assume walls around it in Mm -hmm. this stream bed yeah and basically drained all the water away from it and put a stairwell down there and there's a guy just like soaking it with water yeah they're probably doing this relatively constantly they are it's every 30 minutes they have to spray it down with water because and especially because there's a heat wave going on right now too they just have to keep it wet or else it's gonna start like falling apart the wood start the wood starts splintering and breaking up (laughs) the guy's literally spraying it with a hose if they're doing it every 30 minutes they must have like an automated sprinkler system or something set up right they must because it's not (laughs) like they can do it overnight but maybe they don't have to do it as often overnight when it's dark and they don't have the heat of the sun on it it still dries out it still dries out i don't know it sounds you know what it sounds a lot like hmm when we Miami? were in Miami and we had to take shifts and get up in the middle of the night to go over and fill the generator with gas so that it would keep pumping water out of the well site that we were excavating. because yeah, our <laughs> excavation was under the water line. Yeah. And it was a natural limestone filter, basically, for the yeah. intercoastal waterway. And we just bring water in. Yeah. You know, nice, clean, filtered, filtered water, basically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we had to have a generator running pretty much 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. and it was crazy. And then you always get that one drunk bastard that slept in or missed his shift, and we all get to work in the and morning, just and like totally flooded. 12 feet of water in there. <laughs> or the like, generator well, failed, I think, at one point, oh, or yeah. the pump did, and like... Uh, yeah, but yeah. Shi- the sh- person on shift is supposed to notice that, and then go at 2 a.m. and see that that happened. But yeah, it was anyway. like in between shifts or something, anyway. I'm- it was always a nice morning of just like sitting at the bagel shop when that happened, because it yeah. would take a couple hours for it to for pump. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I have a feeling people went over there and like turned the generator off just to have an easy morning. I'm not saying I wouldn't have done that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was a little ridiculous to expect people to wake up at midnight and then 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. to go put gas in a generator. The things that CRM archaeologists do kind of insane. I'm willing to bet there's very similar problems in this area here because with that silty soil, you can see it sitting on silty Mm -hmm. sand. Yeah, it looks like muck. (laughs) It has got to be staying wet. I mean, it is below the stream. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They they moved the stream out of the way in order to excavate this. Yeah. And they are fully excavating it. They are dismantling it piece by piece. Right. And they they probably want to put this back together, I would assume, I, after preservation. There is, there's some, that that's up in the air. We'll talk about that in a minute, but yeah. it's up in the air what they're going to do with it. So they, they have to remove each piece, clean it, and then resubmerge it in water in order to keep it from splintering, splitting, and basically falling apart. Mm-hmm. So that's the process there. It's kind of less archaeology and more just like recovery almost, you know? Yeah. And I was thinking before reading this that I had heard before that one of the ways to preserve wood, at least small pieces of wood, was to inject it with a substance. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of exactly what they're doing. And I didn't know you could do it on this scale, though. Yeah. But they're injecting it with a resin, uh, basically, that essentially... Would preserve it. It it kind of like preserves it in place. It coats all the things, but then, you know, dries clear. Yeah. So, So it just looks like a piece of wood. Probably an incredibly heavy piece of wood. Yeah, but like, how do you... Do you do that when it's wet and then it gets coated in resin when it's wet? I don't think you and can do it when it's dry. I, you can. Apart. It would be it unless would you did apart. it in a in a very controlled environment. Yeah, yeah. That, the problem is some of these pieces are really big. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. When you look at that picture, you can see it looks like the the bottom of a boat just like sitting on the the bed of the yeah. stream. So yeah, the way they're put together, it looks just looks like a whole bunch of railroad ties. Mm-hmm. Honestly, yeah, it's crazy. Well, the other option, if this whole resin idea doesn't work, is to just rebury it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where they would rebury it. Probably somewhere secret so that people don't mess with it and somewhere with wet (laughs) soil yeah yeah or just let it go 
you know, once they get it recorded. Once they have all the information, yeah. like what's the point in keeping the thing if you've pulled all the information from it? Well, the, the one cool thing, if they were able to, is, and I don't know what the answer to this question is, but, well, first off, is it even you know, from that area of Southern France or did you just wreck there? Right. Do they yeah, even know that yet? They haven't so, said. Yeah. So whose technology is this an example of? And do we have one? Mm-hmm. Or do we have a good one from this era of a ship like that? My guess is probably not. We probably don't have a ton of them, but you know, if they are able to preserve it, you know, setting this thing up. So it looks like a good ship would be a really good example of just things from this area. And that would be really cool to have because that's the whole, one of the whole points of archeology span is to, you know, find these examples of things through time and then show people and learn from them so they can see and, and study them. So, but if we've got a thousand of these, then yeah, rebury it. Yeah, totally. So I was just checking the article and it says that the boat dates to the time of the Franks, which are a tribal people who sort of came into the area after the fall of the Roman Empire and they kind of dominated sort of Western Europe in that time frame. And specifically, the ruling group were called the Merovingians. So they're kind of attributing the wreck to that those people in that time frame mm-hmm. because just because of the carbon dating that puts it in that time frame. I don't think they have any other identifying characteristics that say it is. It was the Franks that came through, huh? I thought it was the Garys, but I, I could have been. That <laughs> oh was a different God. era, I think. The jokes are bad I'm not today. Actually, sure. <laughs> they're bad today. <laughs> Where that is, yes. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway, I don't I don't know if it's worth preserving, going through all that yeah. effort to preserve it, or if they. I mean, it. they say that they don't have any other boat like this across Europe. So, but my question is, is that why preserve it? Mm-hmm. After you map it, after you get all the photos and the images and you've done the testing, what more do you, can you possibly learn from a resin coated boat? Now, if you're putting it on display for people to see, that's one thing. That's really cool. It's yeah. public outreach. It's It's taking something really neat and putting it in front of people who don't know about that kind of thing. Great. But- from just a preserve to have it kind of standpoint, I'm like, why do that? Yeah. Again, if they don't have a lot of examples of it. it that's you know, true. It would be it would be really it cool be a good. museum for people to learn from. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I like that. That'd be the only reason. Well, and you never know what future technologies will bring to. You know, you're sure. always saying that. So I guess there's there's that to consider. But yeah. That's true. And they've dated it, but I wonder what else they could tell from really studying the timbers, you know, cross-sectioning yeah. them and, and, and looking at them and, and see if there's anything else they can figure out. Because yeah. there's actually, in, at least in the pictures, there's there's a lot left. Yeah. Uh, probably some of the upper structure is gone and things like that, but there's a lot left. And you can tell a lot just by looking at the timbers and how they were created and mm-hmm. the, the rivets that are inevitably there that held it all together. Yeah, and, totally. You know, and, the technology involved. And it's big, too. It's yeah. it's pretty big. It probably could have handled a, a large cargo. Mm-hmm. So now I wonder if, like, embedded in the wood, they could find particles of whatever kind of cargo yeah. it carried, which would be really interesting to test and find out what was in it. Now, it mm-hmm. was in a river, in a stream bed, so all of that could have been carried away over the years, too. It would have to be, like, deeply embedded in the wood. But that yeah. could be a kind of a neat study. Okay, all right, fine. I'm on the preservation side of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's just resin yeah. will ruin it. Like yeah. it, resin, sure, it preserves it, but it also ruins it. So like, <laughs> yeah, but it's already ruined. Yeah, so it can't well, get any worse. I mean, it can. <laughs> and we're just trying to arrest the worsening. <laughs> the worsening. Yeah. Right. So it ruins it for future testing. I guess is what I'm saying. It will do that. Yeah. yeah. But I would be willing to bet they'd maybe keep a couple beams aside. Yeah. You know, keep them in water keep or something. Preserved for yeah. sure. So yeah, they estimated the original size of this boat to be around 40 feet, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, you because know, you know the shapes of boats is pretty easy to determine. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no 
like they have to be a certain shape to yeah. work, you know, just from a buoyancy standpoint. And people figured that out back in the day. So it looks to me like they have half to maybe three, two thirds of it. Mm-hmm. Just estimating the, the size yeah. based on what they say here. So the one last question that they're trying to answer here is why? Why is it here? It's it's kind of a marshy area, I guess. It's not yeah. not a great spot for a, a boat. So why? Right, and what happened this, to it? Did that was it the same type of area environmentally thirteen hundred years ago? Well, they're saying it's like the a side stream of the Garonne, with and it's a and it's a marshy area. And while it's been used since antiquity and throughout the medieval mm-hmm. area, the article says it's also kind of not a great area. So I don't know. It's just I hard. Mean, yeah, thirteen hundred years ago was still still on the on the backslide of the last ice age. Mm-hmm. And I know in the I know in, in North America, at least in the like the United States area, you were still dealing with some larger lakes that now currently don't exist. Oh, I and see. those lakes were created from glacial outwash, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just uh, glacial melting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, glaciers covered Europe, too. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if maybe there were higher sea, higher levels of everything mm-hmm. and what the air environment looked like back in that time. Yeah. So what looks like just a little stream today might have been right. much more significant back then. It's definitely right. possible. Yeah. Yep. I feel like they would know that, though, because don't we have a pretty good record of that kind of thing? Well, we do in some areas, but maybe Not they everywhere. don't in that yeah. area. Well, yeah. Who knows? And And this is also just like an NBC News article. True not story. <laughs> it's so not the paper. <laughs> there's more yeah. than likely they've already got this data and they just didn't report on it. Yeah, that's so. definitely possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should actually getting to that point. This is pretty early. Like we ha- we're seeing pictures of the excavation and I believe they are still excavating. Mm-hmm. They haven't even decided what they're doing for preservation. So I would expect that at some point down the line, we'd get a an actual paper about it, which would sure. answer some of these questions. So this sure. is definitely preliminary. All right. Well, I think that's about it for the shipwreck episode. (laughs) What a shipwreck. What a shipwreck. (laughs) All right, shipwreck. I guess we'll see you uh, next week. Our next recording will still be from Long Beach, but then, you know, after that, it's going to get more interesting. We're going to go back up into, um, well, we're going to stay in Washington for a week after that, and then we're up into Canada for a month. Yeah, we're going to do a little Canada touring. So, yeah. So we'll see what we can do up there. I don't know if there's anything we can record about that we can actually get onto the show, but that would be pretty cool if we could. <laughs> well, if it's the archaeology show, not the history show, which makes it hard. But when archaeology we go to is history, which makes me like <laughs> it is. Uh, it is. It's yeah. true. <laughs> but maybe we could find some Canadian-themed stories or something. Maybe we can. That would be fun. Yeah, for that'd sure. be really cool. Yep. All right. Well, with that, we're gonna take this shipwreck out. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Come.